Welcome to the Director's Exchange, commentary from leading funeral industry analysts and practitioners. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Raymond Akins. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Director's Exchange. My name is Raymond Akins and I'll be serving as your host moderator. We come to you, of course, courtesy of the folk at FuneralRadio.com, which is a radio network that's solely dedicated to the funeral industry and the professionals who work therein. Now, I like to say that we showcase commentary by what I call the best and brightest in our field, and today it is my esteemed pleasure to welcome onto the program the very highly regarded funeral home consultant, Mr. David Nixon. Uh, by way of background, David's entire career has focused on funeral service, and he began as a rep for a national funeral home accounting firm, but moved on to become one of the nation's top business advisors to the funeral industry, and of course he owns and operates his own consulting practice. David is uh, the author of the annual cremation study, which is published by the American Funeral Director magazine under the title Listening to Cremation. And David also happens to be a faculty member of the ICCFA University. Now, Nixon Consulting, which is his firm, it specializes in uh, advising funeral home owners along the lines of such factors or matters as pricing, profit, and planning. And that also includes financial analysis, preparing uh, working budgets, and advising on the creation of profitable funeral packages and assisting with merchandise selecting and markup guides. Last year, and this is notable, David earned the title of Certified Management Consultant, and that's a designation of the Institute of Management Consultants, of which fewer than 1% of all active consultants have earned that designation. David, I'd like to welcome you onto the program, and what I just gave was a quick summary of your background, and I'm just wondering if there's anything more you'd like to add before we launch into the actual interview. Well, Ray, thank you for that kind introduction, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and, and the listeners. Um, yeah, going back in 1979 when I first started, service charges for funeral homes were less than $1,000. Uh, so things have changed dramatically in the last, well, actually, this month marks my 35th anniversary of when I first started with, uh, with funeral home work. Okay. And so it, uh, it, it has seen quite a change. I think we're going to talk about some of those changes today. Exactly. Uh, and that's a good point to start out with because you've been quoted in the past as saying that the industry has changed and rather dramatically uh, I, my background, you might say, is uh, started out operating in an environment which was more like a mom and pop atmosphere. And today, I'm going to quote you. You say that attention to the business side of the profession has moved to the forefront. Now, uh, part of that may have to do with the fact that uh, the cremation rates have. Uh, been rising, but I think you point out in many instances that one of the mistakes we make in the industry, the independents at least, uh, is that we charge uh, below-cost prices uh, on our cremations, and that's having a detriment, 
uh, detrimental effect on the uh, uh, profitability of the enterprise. And I like to say more, and you can comment on all these in whichever order you'd like, but uh, another thing we note is the uh, advent of declining profit margins. We have third-party sellers uh, that we have to contend with in the industry, and increasingly the service selection has been impacted by uh, combinations. It might be the economy on one hand, but we also have the baby boomers in the marketplace today, and they've brought about, as they always have in the past, uh, a significant shift in terms of preferences on the part of the funeral industry. And of course, all this has had a profound impact on our business. How how, how would you like to present that that case in a way that our listeners can follow? All right. Well, you, you mentioned uh, uh, at the beginning my listening to cremation survey. I started that back uh, in the early 90s with my former firm, realizing that we needed to segregate traditional burial calls, as they were then, to, with cremation so we could see what the impact was. And so this marks the 20th anniversary uh, coming up this summer where I'll publish that survey. And... Uh, what it's showing us, of course, uh, uh, is that the revenues stream from cremation, uh, the calls that are cremation-oriented are not generating the same revenues. Uh, let me take a moment back here and say that for years, the profit margins for, for funeral service were rather comfortable. Double digit, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. Back uh, 30 years ago, you know, in the neighborhood of 11% or 12% in that neighborhood. Now today, reportedly, it's, it's just a little over 6%. Uh, so we can see that the days of old with uh, checkbook management, where, you know, firms basically just look to see what was in their checkbook to see if they're doing all right, those have slowly dwindled to the point that, uh, now you can't really do that anymore, and the margins are tighter, especially since the Great Recession. And the Great Recession proved to a lot of people that funeral service was no longer uh, immune to uh, recession. We weren't recession-proof anymore. Mm -hmm. So attitudes have changed. Um, people are watching what they're spending, particularly on funerals, more than probably ever. I get usually a call every week or so uh, about a, from a client saying that he's being challenged by people saying that they don't have any funds or don't have any money. But cremation has, in the 20 years I've studied it, uh, essentially caused a, a, a decrease in the amount of money that a funeral home makes. In the last survey, I uh, highlighted the, the difference between what a traditional burial makes and what a cremation uh, brings in, and you know, we're talking about in the neighborhood of uh, 7,300 for a, an average burial casket and service, versus about 3,400 for a, a cremation and a container. So, we're looking at a what I call the gap of about 46.6 percent, which historically the last several years is about where it's been. In that gap, I mean that the the cremations just aren't generating the revenue. And this is nothing new, but I think in the last few years since the, re the recession, uh, some funeral homeowners have begun to really see it impact their business. Uh, 
So that's one of the changes we talked about. Yeah, I I agree. And when you talk about that gap, let's kind of clarify that for our listeners because uh, you're saying that on average cremations are only bringing in approximately, well, a little less than half the revenue you would get off of a traditional burial. Correct. Okay. Now, and as cremations move up in the uh, product mix, then that's having an overall detrimental effect on uh, the earnings of the uh, the company. Yeah, there seem to be two particular points where it's, it's it really affects the the firm in terms of, of revenues, in terms of what they're bringing in, and, and that's about a thirty-one percent cremation rate, which many have already passed, uh, and of course fifty percent. And, you know, I predicted, I think, in the next couple of years here, we're going to see that cremation is going to be the number one, quote, means of disposal, uh, meaning that burial will no longer be king. You know, for some firms, this is a shot across the bow. I hope they're listening to what you're saying. And just as a footnote, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the uh, 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 Service Corporation or SCI, their uh, uh, report, the financial report, it was just published uh, yesterday after the markets closed. But, you know, I caught one one line, and this is, uh, they're reporting on their fourth quarter uh, um, incidents of cremation, and the year-over-year change was like 190 basis points, or so just under a 2% increase in the cremation rate. And Service Corp uh, uh, International is now experiencing a cremation rate as of 50.6%. Yes. And that let's let's explain what that means. That means one out of every two calls is uh, cremation. Correct. They've kind of passed that that barrier where cremation is uh, going to be the predominant service. Okay. And also mm-hmm. uh I could be wrong about this, David, but uh, I believe, my, as best I can tell, this is the first year-over-year uh, change where the average revenue per call actually declined for Service Corp International. Yeah, and that's important, an important measurement you just mentioned, uh, and revenues per call. That's, I watch that very closely with clients because it tells me what's happening uh, you know, the call volume can be up or down, but, you know, the revenue per call is a kind of a standard that you can use to see what's happening. So it, it uh, doesn't surprise me. Uh, SCI's concentration is largely, uh, you know, more urban, um, large city-type situations, and the cremation rates are higher there. Um, and you're comment too about their increase in the cremation percentage of just under two percent i think most firms would be wise to factor in that that their firm could very well see an increase of two percent per year in in, in the cremation rate i i kind of um it's kind of an ominous uh, tone to it but <laughs> i i will say this um you still say uh rest assured that the future is bright for our industry. It is bright. Go go ahead. Can you clarify that, please? Sure. Um, What I'm saying is that there's going to be a a weeding out. Um, 
there are going to be some firms that are going to be um, sold or go out of business. Uh, you mentioned the baby boomers, and some of the owners are at the point now, uh, and I talk with them every day practically, where they're thinking about their exit strategy and how they're going to um, sell their business or what they need to do to get ready. And some of it is probably particip precipitated by the uh, the cremation situation. Um, so they uh, they see that they have to change. So overall, I think what we're saying here, Ray, is that, and, and I hope the listeners realize, I think there's going to be fewer rooftops or fewer owners mm -hmm. of fewer rooftops. So those that operate smart, those that make good and wise decisions, they're going to be around. Those that are maybe just doing a small volume or just essentially making a, earning a living and making a career, um, those boomer owners could be leaving here within the next five to ten years. So um, it's going to weed out that way, uh, probably not as fast as some people would hope, but uh, I think the, the smart operators, the smart owners, and, and the, the owners who have good people working with them, uh, their staff members are, are well-trained, they're going to do fine, I think. Uh, those that don't progress and, and don't keep looking at what consumers want, they're going to have a problem. Okay, so this is a theme that seems to occur uh, uh, repeatedly, and that is that the attention to the business side of the uh, uh, the operator, the operator's uh, operating plan or strategic plan, that's all now come to the forefront. And uh, do you encounter very many of your clients who have the uh, capability of uh, assessing where they are at this time in their practice? Well, one of the things uh, I find that most uh, firms and owners would like to see is is how they're doing compared to other firms, a benchmarking, if you will, yes. so they know they're on the right track or not. Sure, sure. And, and not everybody has that ability to do that, uh, but we try to do that with firms and to the point where we help them, and I use the word right-sizing, and I don't use it in a negative sense. It isn't just all about making cuts and reducing expenses. It's about looking at the revenues and saying, hey, you know, we need to, get those boosted up, we've got to increase those revenues. That revenue per call we talked about a few moments ago. Yes, sir. What's happening with that? Uh, traditionally in funeral service, it's going up mm, 2 to 3% per year. But when you look at some of the things that are going on, the cost of caskets for one, those exceed that increase. They're going up 4 and 5% uh, on average. So, you know, you've got to look at the revenues, and you've got to look at the expenses. We even go to the point where we look at a firm line by line on their expenses and compare them to other firms so that we can target areas that need looked at. Uh, just uh, a year or two ago, discovered a firm that was still paying for pagers that hadn't been used in 10 years. How does that happen? Um, how does that happen? That's a good question. You know, sometimes you'll have someone who pays the bills, and they're really not looking at the overall big picture. They're just writing out the checks. And so the owner, if he or she isn't really paying attention to what's happening there, 
um, the checks get made, the bills get paid, and, and so you don't really see what's happening. So that's how it, it works, and that's why it slips through the cracks. Are you able to, uh, well, the industry, I think the, the, the uh, standard assumption is that approximately 85% of the uh, operators out there are independents, with the balance being the, uh, the corporates or partnerships. Uh, if indies represent that largest segment, uh, what percentage of, can you estimate what percentage are uh, adhering to practices that will ensure their long-term survival versus those who are not? Well, That's a I tough think, question, I know. Yeah, it, it is, but I think we have to realize, you know, and I learned from my personal experiences um, starting when I was 10, year old, uh, 10 years old, my brother passed away. That was my first real introduction to funeral service. And uh, the, the group, as I understand it and have worked with, they're caregivers. I mean, that's the nature of this profession is caregivers. So they're not always good on the business side of things because I know firsthand, and I've had it I don't know how many times over the 35 years where we're working on a project, but, whoops, they got a call. <laughs> we got to do that call, and nothing else gets done. And so if they are busy and busy and busy, you know, they get swamped. Uh, they don't worry about the planning. Uh, so I would say that probably the majority of firms are, are, are not really particularly uh, adept at, at the planning side of things because they're busy doing what they want to do, and that's serve families. Okay. David, I, if you don't mind, please, I'd like to take just a brief pause. Uh, this is a, a, a commercial. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. We're just going to pause and we'll come right back and we'll continue with the interview. And where I'd like to go is next is how do you help right-size a firm? UPD Urns leads the industry with our unique collection of cremation urns and jewelry. Offering an exclusive line, including the hand-painted Titan Brass Urn, the Peaceful Pillow Biodegradable Urn, and the Southwest Reku Urn, all priced under $100 with free shipping. So visit updurns.com slash funeral radio today and get 20% off your first order. UPD Urns, memorable cremation urns and jewelry for funeral homes. This is Cindy Neely Spence, your host for Make Ceremony Matter More. On this program, I talk shop with life cycle celebrants about their experiences creating unique ceremonies. Our show demonstrates how end-of-life ceremonies can be different. It highlights unique approaches to meeting what many funeral industry clients are seeking. Please join us to learn how to make Ceremony Matter More for your clients, only on Funeral Radio. Now, uh, we were talking about, um, the, I, like you, I like your concept or your idea of right-sizing the firm. Uh, let's maybe outline uh, that procedure, and then I'd like to go into some of the finer points of that. All when right. you say right-size the firm, what do you do? Does someone call you and they just say, look, I, I don't know where, where I am. I want to change things. Yeah, I, we get calls fairly regularly from, from owners who uh, they're in a tight cash situation. 
they maybe haven't been watching as closely as they should. And we mentioned you can't use the checkbook anymore necessarily, but it is an indicator, and they know that there's less money there. Uh, so we get called and say, hey, you know, I need some help along these lines. What can you do? And, you know, the term right-sizing has had a negative connotation. It usually means let's cut, and, and that's part of it. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, we need to look at the income stream. We need to look at see what their sales are doing. What's their average? What's their average burial sale? What's their average casket sale? We need to have an idea of what they're doing year to year. And the only way to do that is to dig into their sales and really analyze what's going on, which is what we do. And then we can say, hey, here's your averages and here's your service charge. Let's look at the general price list and see what's going on here and what tweaks need to be made or could be made that are going to improve things. And, and we've touched on this one, Ray, and that is the cremation side. You know, uh, in my opinion, in my experience, cremation has been severely uh, underpriced for years and years, beginning back uh, 50 years ago or so when funeral service said we don't really want to do cremations, and the cremation societies kind of took over that uh, part of business, and they gave it this cheap connotation. And the reality is, of course, that it really isn't cheap. We just choose to price it cheaply. So as far as the income side, we've got to look at that. And, you know, uh, everything I've read from different marketing experts and my own experience tells me that there's really only two pricing positions. You're either going to be the price leader or the discount provider. That's a good point because um, uh, I think the perception, I could be wrong about this, but uh, a lot of operators feel that they are competing with discounters and uh, low price providers and they have to keep their prices low in order to keep that market from slipping away from them. Is there uh, an era of perception in taking that approach? Well, I think there is because if you look at the, the two polar opposites here, the price leader and the, the discount provider, if your price is in the middle, in other words, if you're not the cheapest, particularly on cremation, you're not going to get people coming to you because your, your price is cheap. On the same token, the people who come to you or want to come to you and think that there's quality, price time, at times denotes quality. And so there's been a reluctance to charge appropriately for cremation because of these 695ers, the 995ers that are out there. And I think maybe we've looked at it improperly. We really should be looking at it as, though there are people who will pay us who value the services that funeral homes have to offer, but we haven't been charging them for it. Instead, we're trying to play the low ball game, and we're not doing a good job at that either. Yes. So uh, my feeling is, and I've been in, uh, I can't say how many funeral homes over 35 years, but most funeral homes I've been in, they're not designed to be discount providers. Mm -hmm. Their facilities are too, too the large. Fi the fixed costs. Yeah. Yeah. They've got staffing, they've got facilities, which are the two largest expense categories for, for funeral homes, and there's really, you know, not a lot they can do to, to reduce it. Well, so, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. Oh, if, if I 
recall correctly, uh, this is 2014. Uh, I believe you're saying in less than five years, uh, cremation will be the dominant uh, portion of the product mix uh, for most operators. That's correct. And it's not just me. I think even Kena and some others are now saying that it's, it's going to be the top dog, so to speak. So we're less than five years away, and if anyone's got a business that's focused uh, mostly on burial and they're not giving attention to cremation, that's a recipe for disaster. Oh, absolutely. Ray, there's an example I use in some of my presentations where you've got a, a, like a 100-call firm, and the difference in revenues between, say, 30% um, cremation and 60% cremation uh, for that business size, it could be a quarter of a million dollars less revenue, yeah. which is huge. So uh, is it proper to say that uh, I know you, you've you got uh, clients in markets where cremation is already 70% of their uh, their product mix. So for those of us who are seeing, you know, a third or less in terms of cremation right now, what do we say to these people? Because they may, may, may not necessarily see what's coming down the pike. Well, yeah, I, I've talked to different state groups and, and different groups where their cremation rate is 30% or less. And I'm telling them they need to educate their public, their consumers, their families now on why, you know, a, a cremation isn't just direct. In fact, I wish we could just exclude that word direct from discussions. I know with FTC that's not possible, but if we focus always on direct, that's what we're going to sell. When we call, and I do this on occasion, call uh, a client and shop them over the phone, inevitably, even before the, the, the word cremation comes up, I'm told the direct cremation price, which is the cheapest part of the cremation that they have to offer. So we're kind of guiding people that way. And that's scary, but these areas that have a low cremation rate compared to some of the others right now, they have the opportunity to educate their community. Not only the cremation can be the same as burial, just a different way of, as they say, disposition, it's it's really a matter of educating them and getting them uh, in tune with what you can do. Okay, well, you know, David, you know, as I listen to you, it really sounds as though you're saying that uh, with the business part moving to the forefront, uh, one of the areas of first, well, not necessarily the first, but marketing is going to be an increasing portion of this because if people are shifting to cremation you want to capture more of that market and you want to uh, draw in uh, buyers not necessarily based on price but the you have to some way convey or distinguish how your services differ from most others around that's pretty sophisticated uh management is it not well compared to the way we've been for uh the last uh, uh century or so yeah 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 because uh well i grew up uh in in pittsburgh pennsylvania and at one point there were 400 funeral homes surrounding that city 
which is the largest concentration, I think, of anywhere in the country. And, you know, there's a lot of small rooftops, if you will, a lot of small firms, and it gets very competitive. So I'm not unfamiliar with the competitive side of things, but what I can say is I think we've got to, to change the conception here that all it is is direct, that there are options, and we've got to charge accordingly. But even on the direct cremation, Ray, we've got a problem in that, you know, okay, you have a firm down the street that's charging 9.95, or somebody who's willing to do that type of service. If you're charging not the same as, if you're not charging less than, you're not going to get that business. So I'm saying you're going to have to charge more because your business warrants it. I mean, the average cost per service for for funeral homes is in the neighborhood of five to six thousand dollars. Well, $2,000 cremation doesn't do that, mm-hmm. not bringing in that revenue. So we're okay. still penalizing the burial families for charging them more uh, because we're not getting as much revenue on the cremation side. So I think if we're going to do something with cremation and be able to charge more, we have to do more than what the other firm is doing. Now, I, I take it, does that become clear once you go through your uh, numbers and maybe what segment your customers and see what the trends are? Does, is that the way you point to uh, what areas you need to focus immediate attention on? That's one of the areas. Um, Ray, we've seen it and continue to see it where firms are, well, they've taken the position maybe because of just happenstance where they're just not charging even on the burial side, what they should be charging. So we've got to, to look at that side of things, taking into account competition, but at the same time, uh, the firms I work with uh, are a good select group of firms, and uh, I think their service levels are, are very high. So I don't see why they might want to be in the, the lesser price service. It doesn't make sense in, in many cases. So the cremation side is part, is part of it, but also the, the regular service charge side, even on the traditional. We've got to see that they're bringing in the revenues that they need. The flip side is looking then again at the, the cost of merchandise and their operating expenses. So we need to know that you know they're not paying too much for merchandise, caskets or vaults or whatever it might be, and we need to know what's going on in the expense side. Now, I've got firms that are 50% of their, their revenues are going to personnel. Are they wrong? I'm not sure that they're wrong. If they're paying the people well, that's a good thing. If their staff uh, is doing a good job, there's not, I don't see a problem with that. But in the same token, I see some firms that are lucky to break even, and, and that causes me a concern. And so we try to address that. And, Ray, one of the bigger things to, to think about is that there are a lot of firms out there that have not, well, they don't have a regular retirement fund built into their business model. That is, basically, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish that no, talk because that's just where I want to go next. Well, they're basically relying on the value of their funeral business as their retirement vehicle. And I think that's a huge mistake 
you know, it's like putting all your eggs in one basket, you know, back to Economics 101 where they tell you, hey, don't do that ever. <laughs> but yet I see that a lot. Well, I, and, I've seen estimates of over 80%. I think you say it's even higher than that of the uh, net worth of an owner uh, being tied up uh, in the firm itself. Correct. Correct. Now, imagine that you bought a stock somewhere. Well, if we can yes. think of the classic Enron, okay? Exactly. Where you've had all your money in retirement in your company stock, and then all of a sudden it, it, it goes you know, down the tubes. You're stuck. What do you have? Now, I'm not saying funeral service is in that same atmosphere, um, but the reality is you're putting all your eggs in one investment, and you're hoping that you can cash out whenever you are ready to go. Yes. I don't see a lot of firms building wealth outside of the funeral service uh, side or building equity even in their business. Oftentimes, they're just basically, said, earning a living and uh, very little else. Yeah. Well, you can't so, build any wealth if you're not uh, profitable. <laughs> where's, it, where's the money going to yeah. come from to invest? It's a catch twenty two, isn't it? It sure is. And if you know you don't that, make, go ahead. If you don't make money <laughs> you can't put money aside and you can't build your position so that when you're ready to exit uh, the business that, that you're gonna live comfortably. Uh, I've seen cases where the owners were probably more than ready to leave, but then discovered at the last moment that they weren't gonna be able to live in the lifestyle that they wanted. Well, so you have an owner who's probably burned out. And who trapped. Isn't, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's trapped. He's trapped. And, and he's going to continue doing what he thinks he's done over the last 30 years or more. And the reality is that the consumerism has taken hold of funeral service, and they're deciding what they want and what they'll pay for. And so it's not a given that it's going to continue along the same way as it always has. It's a rude awakening. You know, um, the f first time I heard you speak, if, if I recall Rick, correct, it was a presentation in Peoria, Illinois, before the Illinois Funeral Directors Association. I believe that's where we first met. I believe and so. I will never forget something you said because it made such an impression on, on me, and that is uh, from a, a valuation standpoint, and, you know, we're dealing with demographic trends, and owners are getting older, and... Your options are becoming fewer uh, in terms of uh, uh, exit strategy. It's, sometimes uh, it's, it's too late. And here's my point. You recommended that if an operator does not have an exit strategy, that they launch a plan because it really takes, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, approximately five years to put your firm in the best light in terms of a sale and uh, uh, it's too late if you just if someone just calls you and says I want to sell and they've not been they've not had a, a exit strategy in operation at all that's the worst time conceivably to sell your business yes you don't want to sell when you have to Yes. Um, I'm reminded, uh, I wrote an article um, called uh, uh, A Graceful Exit. Yes, sir, I remember uh, that. Right, 
been back in January of 2011. It was in the, the Director Magazine, and I quoted in there a book by two gentlemen called "The Ten Trillion Dollar Opportunity," and it was about business owners and exiting. The quote in there was, "Most business owners spend more time planning a family vacation than when and how to exit their business," and that is that's been my experience. Um, I developed kind of a little matrix that says, hey, are you financially in a position to retire? Are you mentally in a position to retire? And you need to know where you're at on either one of those things in order to decide. Because, Ray, I've seen cases where, you know, the owner was healthy and everything was going fine and all of a sudden their health changed. When their health changed, they had to find somebody to buy it. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned a moment ago, that's never a good thing. Um, and they didn't really have a plan. So it takes three to five years in general to get all your ducks in order as far as trying to make your business look as profitable as it can so that you can show a good positive cash flow. Um, you know, you need to look at some of the things that you're doing that maybe you're spending a little more in certain areas than you should. And so you you need to cut back and, and get this business looking at its best. Uh, it's kind of interesting, even now, I'm working with about a half a dozen young business owners who have just or are thinking about buying uh, a business. And, uh, you know, we're looking at those firms and we're looking at what the owners have done some of those owners are in good position and they can command top dollar for their business. Mm-hmm. And maybe that dream comes true <laughs> that they are going to, to live very well in retirement. But there are other firms, that's not the case. And they're just not showing good revenues and good, good profit. Uh, which makes the strong case for having uh, an exit plan. And, you know, I, I've read your stuff and you say... It, it planning exit planning starts the minute you uh, you purchase the business. It, <laughs> well, it's, it should even for younger owners. Exactly. What happens if something happens to them unexpectedly? Mm-hmm. Their spouse or their significant other, they're going to have to deal with this. So the, now here's here's the point. There's a uh, um, there are two sides to the story. There are the things that you have the power to control over, and many of us have been behind the eight ball in terms of uh, taking on that responsibility. But all of that is confounded now by the uh, economic backdrop. And, you know, I've, this, this collapse, and they call it the, the Great Recession, and the uh, the policies on the part of the uh, our economic, uh, I guess, leaders, uh, the Federal Reserve and others, they tried desperately to support asset prices uh, by maintaining low interest rates, etc. Here's here's where I'm going with all this, and that is, it seems as though nobody knows what anything is worth anymore. <laughs> Well, it depends on who you talk to, Ray. Some of them think they know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I, I'm thinking of the case of, a, of an owner who says, well, okay, I'm, I'm getting pretty tired of this. This, this is a game. It's, uh, this is for somebody else. I, I want to enjoy my retirement. It's too much um, 
worry, too much frustration. So I think if I sold my place, if I put my place on the market, I'll probably get X. And they may be in for a rude awakening uh, in terms of people who are willing to purchase their facility at X, which in, which goes right back to the feeling trapped situation. Yes, exactly. You know, there's a, two sides to this, right? Uh, I've seen cases where owners didn't want to do a, uh, you know, real estate valuation, you see what the property was worth. And I've seen a case where, you know, they overestimated what their property was worth by half a million dollars. And I've seen it go the other way, where they've underestimated. So, you know, in real estate, it's fairly consistent, so to speak, um, that you should have an idea of what that property is worth. Uh, but from the business side, there's even less knowledge. And there's uh, some studies out that say a good portion of funeral homes owners know what their business is worth. Oh, I think it's all entirely their, their guesstimate. Yes, sir. Okay? Some owners are still stuck in the 1990s when SCI and Lowen were going head-to-head, and that battle put values of funeral homes you know, upward of $20,000 per call. Mm-hmm. Well, that was never viable, and it didn't last, of course, and it proved true in, in the detriment of, of everybody, basically. And, you know, we're seeing kind of a resurgence where some people are looking to, to sell now, and the values are going up, but they're not near where they were in, in the 1990s. But some owners still have that mindset that, I, you know, I know this is what I was offered Back in 1997, I was offered $2 million. Sure. So I know it's at least worth $2 million. Well, not necessarily. The multiples they're using to decide values these days have changed. And how's your business changed? Yes. You may not be as profitable, so therefore the revenues aren't there. You know, the, the cash flow isn't there to, to warrant it. It comes down to a, a new owner has got to be able to make the debt payment pay the owner, and still make profit. Mm-hmm. It, that, that hasn't changed. But what you mentioned a moment ago about the artificially low interest rates, in today's market, sometimes it gives the buyer an edge to pay a little bit more because money, the cost of money isn't so, so high. On the other side, you can see where owners are saying, hey, you know, you can make changes here, you can make changes there, and the interest rates are lower, so now you can pay me a lot more. Well, it doesn't always happen that way. Okay. So. Uh, all right, so let's, let's take this approach. Um, for all the, the listeners who are owner-operators those who plan or dream of owning their own enterprise, what would be your suggestion in terms of a, a program of, uh, let's see, monitoring the uh, dynamics or, or trying to cite where the opportunities are going to be in the future? I, I, that's kind of vague, but do you need more clarification? No, Ray, I think, uh, you know, I'm working on a, a, a situation right now that hopefully 
we'll close here very shortly, where it's taken this younger owner um, from start to finish probably about four and a half years. Wow. To, to get the, the, the baby boomer owner ready and willing to do anything. So we're very close to closing on that situation. If you are a present owner looking to expand or if you're somebody who's looking to, to buy a firm because you want your own business, you've got to, it's kind of like the old fishing analogy, right? You've got to have a few lines in the water. Mm-hmm. Your, your odds of, uh, of getting what you want, of catching something, go up tremendously. And that's the case here, you know. My experience over the years is you, you get somebody and says, oh, yeah, if I, when I sell, I'll call you. Whether it's, again, a younger person wanting to buy in or somebody who's looking to expand, the problem is that somebody gets a hold of them all of a sudden and the deal is done and you didn't even get to know about it. You've got to be, you know, building relationships with some of these owners and working toward trying to move them forward in a, a way to help them exit. And that's going to be a key, but there aren't many funeral homeowners or even people who want to own who are willing to take the time to build those relationships and make sure and follow up with it. And, and believe me, some of these processes, as I say, can take quite a while. Yeah. And effort. It's effort. But you, that's what you need to do, in my opinion. You mentioned another uh, word that I've become uh, increasingly uh, sensitive to, and that is that term relationship. Uh, I don't know if this is a, uh, uh, a new era, but it seems as though everything is evolving around relationships and one's ability to cultivate it now, within the enterprise and outside the enterprise. That's your market out there. And boomers are relationship-oriented, and a firm has got to appeal to that uh, kind of mindset. I think a lot of, a lot of your older guys, I'm, I'm not sure if, if they really understand that dynamic. <laughs> That's a good point, right? Because when I began 35 years ago, and talking with some of the origin, original uh, founders of their firms, they knew the value of those relationships, and that's what built their business. Yes. The subsequent generations, in some cases, just have not uh, followed through in building relationships. And, yeah, you've got a segment out there of, of consumers. They want the least expensive, and they don't care about relationships. I don't think that's the market. I agree with you. For most funeral homes, okay? I think people buy from people. And face-to-face still accounts for something. All the social media and everything else can get people there. But if you don't build relationships, if you don't build that, uh, when the time comes, they're just going to go wherever they want. Mm-hmm. And you want to give them a reason to come to you. And, and, and that's not just the owner. I'm talking about the staff as well. You know, I think a lot in the future is going to be dependent on the staff and how well they're trained and how well they're, they're willing to um, extend themselves and help the owner build rapport and build those relationships. 
I say amen to that, and that means then that you have to cultivate a level of uh, relating to your staff where they they feel like a part of the team. They want to help you grow. Uh, I, I talk to too many uh, uh, staff people who describe their boss in a very negative uh, uh, tone, and I know in the long run that's going to serve to the detriment uh, of the company. Uh, we, I, you know, I also teach in uh, the Mortuary College, and I've studied the work of the funeral uh, funeral home. Is it the Funeral Home Foundation? Uh, funeral, funeral Service Foundation. Funeral Service Foundation. Mm-hmm. And, and they're saying, like, never before uh, in at least uh, post-World War II or modern history has the demand for uh, people with good relation skills uh, uh, been been higher. Uh, you can talk about a market where some see it as you know not much work opportunity, but the person out there who's got good relational skills, it seems as though they'll always be able to find a job. Well, Ray, I think over the years, some of the, the owners historically have not paid their help well. Um, and we won't get into the reasons why it just has, has happened that way. Uh, and remember talking to a, a, an, an older owner, um, actually post retirement, who, when I mentioned you know the need to thank his employees, well, what, his comment was, "Well, why do I need to thank them? I'm paying them." Well, that's that's a relationship right there that that needs some work. Yes. Okay, because they're not on the same team. And it's going to be a lot about the people who are good, as you said, with relationship building. Uh, I recall uh, my bank manager who worked uh, in a McDonald's as, as, as a manager, and she served this gentleman who was a bank president for, for a long time. And he came in and asked her if she thought about going into banking. And uh, he says, she commented to him, well, I don't know anything about banking. And his comment back was, I can teach you banking. I can't teach you people skills. Mm-hmm. And you have that. So people skills is going to be, I think, key to those successful firms we talked about earlier in them moving forward. I hear all the time the owner saying the people coming out of mortuary schools are not the caliber of people that they want. Well, that may or may not be true, but we've got to have our standards set pretty high. That We need people who can contribute. One owner told me that he didn't really want, this is the old uh, analogy, he didn't really want A players. He was good with C and B players because he was afraid, I think, that some of those A players would end up going in competition against him. Well, you know, with that type of mentality, we're already setting restrictions. Yes, sir, we are. And we're not looking and moving forward to uh, growing that way through, through good people. And I, I really do feel the successful firms who are going to build volume are the ones where the owner is very involved and the owner knows the value of the people there and the people know their own value. Okay, then, uh, you know... I mentioned the other day to you that uh, it was my guesstimation that the mom and top 
mom and pop type operator that's dead and you didn't necessarily agree with that but from all you're saying right now if I had to paint a picture of what the modern uh, funeral enterprise uh, what skills were uh, necessary for survival going forward you know what kind of team do you have to have in place uh, it seems to me the areas of focus are going to be marketing and sales you need some way of monitoring the firm's performance and conducting a periodic or regular financial review and making uh, plans of, you know, what areas need adjustment and a, and a periodic review to assess how well, or, or how well you're doing and whether or not you need to modify it. And you need a leader that's going to... Uh, uh, inspire the staff or and someone to train the staff. The leader can't maybe do all these things at one time. So you're talking about a management uh, a team uh, more so than, uh, you know, like I said, if it's a mom and pop where, you know, the, the wife spends some time or let's say one of the partners spends some time while the other one is out, you know, generating uh, sales or and doing funerals and what have you, the responsibilities required for going further seem to exceed what two human beings are really capable of doing. And even if it's a family business with, uh, with a number of family members who are in charge with uh, managing the in in enterprise, uh, one has to, I would imagine, assess uh, their skills and determine what areas they need to brush up on and then take responsibility for bringing about that change. I agree with you, Ray. Uh, you know, when this profession first began um, in earnest with the, the advent of embalming, uh, it seemed as though the focus was it was all about embalming, Yes. whether you were good or not good, and your business grew accordingly. Well, with half the calls maybe not having embalming, you know, that's not the focus. I'm not saying it's not important because a body that's well-prepared makes a huge difference for families. Mm -hmm. But there's that group out there that they don't really care about that. And, you know, with the, the cremation side of things, if people aren't going to be looking at the bodies uh, or we're not doing at least minimal preparation to make them look outstanding... There's more to this business now. Mm -hmm. Exactly what you said. There's the business side. And, you know, and I said I didn't necessarily agree that the mom and pop model, the mom and pop model that was there 50 years ago has been slowly eroded. Yes, sir. Okay. It's still, as you said, 85% of firms are, are not corporate, uh, well, the, the national corporate chains uh, owned there themselves. But a lot of the firms that I work with, the owners uh, have staff on board, the, the ones who are exceptional. They have the staff on board. Um, they have, quote, a board of advisors, and, and that might include, you know, their accountant, their lawyer, and consultant, or, or other people that they can rely on to give them the straight scoop and tell them, you know, this isn't working or that's working well. And that's the type of feedback that these owners need going forward. They need advisors, in my opinion, that are going to help steer them in the right direction. So broadening out their base 
it can't be just them anymore. And I think that's what you were alluding yes, to there. Yes, sir. It's got to be a broader team base. And to a degree, it includes uh, the staff. I have one firm that's actually sharing, uh, to a degree, financial information with the staff members. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is a younger generation owner who's doing that and um, trying to educate because the staff has no real concept from the business side. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, unless you've been there, it's hard to really fully understand. So he's doing his best, and I'm helping him educate, you know, hey, this is where we're at. And, you know, if we have a good year, everyone does well. If we have not so good a year, it's not so well. Mm-hmm. That's part of ownership. Yes. And so I applaud the effort. It's a, it's a different concept, but I think it, it gets the staff kind of on the same page. It empowers them to understand. And some of them, I can tell you, some of them don't care. They don't want to learn. To them, it's a job. They come, they do their work, and they're gone. But what we're narrowing down here is a group that actually want to learn and feel a certain responsibility to help improve the business. Those are the efforts that we're talking about, involving the staff and involving outside people to help you look at the at the future direction. You know, I imagine it's not easy for most uh, operators if they've got, a let's say, a staff person who's been uh, with the firm for uh, an you know, a significant number of years, but uh, they just really don't have what it takes. They're order takers more so than relationship builders. And uh, I guess in assessing uh, the level of staff skills you have, uh, people who fall into that category are the most, uh, uh, their their long-run survival with the firm is in is in jeopardy it's going to get to a point where i think owners are just going to have to decide who to go with as a team going forward i can't afford to carry dead weight well you know you might be able to afford to carry one person who's not really part of the team uh but that can hurt you long run as you said but when you have one or more it really undermines the whole business Staff feels undermined. They're not really being supported. And, you know, what image and what projection is going on in the community? So you're right. I mean, there's a weeding out here of, of staff people. There's going to be. The, the cream of the crop, of course, will rise. Mm-hmm. And um, there are some people from outside funeral service that probably can do very well, too, uh, coming in and learning because uh, they have good people skills. And, and I think that's where the future lies for, for most firms. They've got to have people who can build those relationships. Okay. All right. We're uh, already we're, we're rapidly running out of time. Uh, based on everything you've said so far, and I kind of consider you an expert on cremation, so I'm going to kind of uh, let you uh, bring to a close by addressing uh, uh, cremation and how the whole issue should proper, properly be framed. But before that, I want to say this. Um, you know, most firms, you'll have two types of clients, and correct me if I'm wrong, you'll have the traditional uh, burial business and you'll have the cremation memorial service uh, providers. 
I think uh, the best defense against the growth of cremation is going to be uh, a continued uh, excellent presentation of a deceased in a casket. I mean, that goes without saying. And then as far as cremation goes, if what one has done in the past is to eschew or not give cremation its proper attention, then going forward, this, ought, this should be an area where you really sit down and look at the number of cremations as this grows as a part of your product mix and relative to the revenue compared to burial, uh, in some cases, when I, I mentioned this before, when you're talking about a gap of around 40-something percent, getting you know close to, let's say, hovering around 50 percent, then your cremation business has got to at least double just to keep pace with the decline you're experiencing in burials. Well, I think you're right on that last point. In essence, what we're saying is it takes two cremations to generate the same revenue as one burial. Yes. And so how are you going to grow that cremation side and do it well? And I'm saying the firms that are in a position today to change their attitude and hopefully the staff's attitude, because that's where a lot of the problems lie, is that, you know, oh, it's just cremation. Well, cremation is another opportunity. I, I did a program uh, last year. You know, funeral homes spend thousands of dollars on advertising to get a call. And that call can come through the telephone or, or however, and yet we don't handle the telephones well. We don't know how to respond. We shoot numbers out without really asking what position the family might be in as far as, you know, is it a pending death or, or, or just a planning situation. There's no, no questions asked. So that, in my mind, is a huge, huge problem for funeral service that needs to be addressed, and particularly because a lot of the calls are cremation-oriented. It's questions about cremation, and we automatically assume it's direct. We should assume the other. We should assume that it's regular. Um, as far as the cremation side, yes, um, even though people don't maybe have embalming, if they're not a traditional cremation call, I believe that every firm should have identification. And if the states themselves don't have that requirement, shame on them. Because they mean, should. What do you mean by identification, please? Identification of the remains before cremation. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. And many states have no regulation regarding that. There's a huge liability issue for, for, for funeral homes in that regard, and we've seen a number of cases where they haven't identified properly. But it's also we're treating cremation families different in that we're saying, you don't need to come in. We can do it without you. Well, is that really what we want? The firms that have done superior and, and very well with cremation actually have private times to say goodbye. And the body is prepared, maybe not embalmed, but prepared to the point where that last image of the family member is a very positive experience. That picture, that forever picture in their mind is of their loved one in a, in a good condition, not maybe the last condition that they saw them at the hospital or when they were just, sure. you know, ending their, sure. their suffering. Um, 
the, the, the comments coming back on surveys and, and other uh, comments that are being heard is that when you provide a viewable body without embalming and you take time to do the preparation, not just the setting of the features, I'm talking about the cleansing and, 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 and perhaps cosmetics even. Mm-hmm. When, when you can, I mean, isn't that what separates funeral homes from just anybody? Sure. How they, how they can handle the body and what they do with it? It brings to mind a a provider I'm in contact or aware of, and he actually has a room, I guess, with a bed in it, and um, the family can come in there and view. They'll put the person in the bed, and and it's got pictures on the wall, as though it were a bedroom, an actual bedroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't recall uh, his uh, comments about how it translates into sales, but I believe it was having a very positive effect. Yeah, I'm aware of a couple of those. And that's giving cremation the respect it's due, I suppose. Well, it is. And when you think about it, eons ago, even before uh, you and I were around, Ray, (laughs) there were a lot of funerals in the home. Yes, sir. That's correct. And 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 somehow we got moved from the home to the funeral home. And it's like the the issue about serving food uh, and, and drinks in, in funeral homes. Uh, one gentleman from uh, Canada, uh, who was a senior vice president of a, a funeral home acquisition firm up there, I heard him make a comment one time that when we took the funeral from the home to the funeral home and we said no food, we were wrong. Because food or family circumstances, that's all part of regular family celebrations, um, holidays. This is part of this concept, I think, where we've got to bring it back home or make people feel like they're at home. When we say funeral home, are we? Yeah, I understand. I'm not so sure. And that's a concept, I think, that really resonates with the boomers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't get a chance to talk about uh, even uh, the celebrants. Uh, I'm going to maybe hold that for uh, a, another another conversation in the future. Uh, by the way, I am a, also a certified uh, a celebrant, and I could make comments ab- about that experience because I serve a, a culture that's primarily you know, African-Americans, and uh, having finished with my celebrant training, I've yet to do a celebrant uh, funeral <laughs> as a celebrant. But I will say this, that training taught me a whole new way of providing uh, the service uh, at a the time of a funeral. And I need to reflect on that, but I get so many positive comments from families. And I really learned to uh, integrate my work with uh, ministers at churches and the uh, the staff that, that serve at the churches. It, and, you know, I, I'm going to leave it at this, David. It is a relationship. It is all about nurturing relationships. And Ray, I mentioned earlier that my brother passed away. He was 13 at the time. Yes, sir. Um, his funeral was fairly generic. Um, he, he, um, he had Down syndrome, and he had some medical issues that, that accompanied that. Sure. And, and then I attended my father's funeral when he was killed in a car accident. And they were, again, both of those were very generic. Uh, I, I wrote about it in um, the Director Magazine, uh, Reflections of a Funeral Consumer, and that was me two years ago when my mother passed away. 
And I, yes, we could talk about the Solomon side in another time because I definitely have feelings about that. Okay. Definitely. All right. Now, here's what I want from uh, you in the form of a closing comment. You know, we discussed the, uh, you, you've got some material that, uh, you know, appears in uh, certain publications that uh, not everybody has ac- access to. Either they're not a member or they're not a subscriber. But yet, uh, we've only touched on the extensive uh, commentary that you've offered along a, a number of lines. So I brought up the question uh, as to, you know, how we might provide a service to our listening audience, those who are professionals. Uh, And I ask you to think about that because we don't want to just put your work on the website where everybody can take a look at it. I think you understand that. Yes, I do. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Have you given any thought? And if you haven't, uh, you can just get back to me later and we'll, we'll put something on the site. But I think you would agree uh, that you certainly don't mind sharing uh, uh, your research or, or your writings with you know other professionals out there in the industry if they'd like to know more about you. Well, Ray, I mentioned to you, you know, I think if, if they want to reach out to me, they can either call me or they can email me. Um, my email is davidn at nixonconsulting.com, and uh, the number is 888-541-9560. I get calls all the time on people wanting information and, and asking questions about articles. So I'd be more than willing to share. Um, as you said, I want to make sure it's going to someone that's that's actually in the profession. Okay. Um, so that's one okay. way that we can do that. Can can we post a link uh, to your website? Sure. Okay. Okay. And you want to mention the the website again? It's, it's it, nixonconsulting.com. Oh, NixonConsulting.com, not NCI. No. Okay, NixonConsulting.com, and they could visit there, and, uh, and I guess from there uh, follow yes. up with you in terms of publications. Correct. Well, sir, this hour really flew by. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, I want to thank you so much for allowing us to uh, take a portion of your time away for this, and um I just can't say thank you enough. I I hope we do you justice by putting something something up on the site that people will listen to and appreciate. It's for me. It's been a real pleasure, David. I like to say thank you, sir, so much. Well, Ray, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with uh, with you and the listeners. And uh, I I think funeral service has a good future and a bright future, but it's going to be different than what it has been. And people are going to have to be more marketing oriented and more business oriented. Oh, and that uh, <laughs> Dynasty Day, we can keep going on because we're about ten years away from a big upsurge. Is that correct? Well, that's, yeah, that's my understanding. Is uh, in using the United Nations crude death rate um, projections. It was done in two thousand eight, but they're saying that the the real increase will have incremental increases between now and two thousand twenty five, but. In 2025 to 2030, there'll be about a 6% jump in the number of calls. And, Ray, I, we shouldn't really be talking about this because we're baby boomers. <laughs> That's going to be us. <laughs> it could be us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, for sure, it's a good time for anyone who's contemplating coming into this industry or considering it as a career. 
Uh, yes or no? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> okay. I agree. I think there's opportunity here, particularly for the younger uh, folks just starting out. Um, they could see this this wave of business from the from the increased death rate. Yeah, they got a bright future. Yeah. Okay. Well, sir, I'm going to let you go. David, thank you so very much. Uh, we went over our hour, but I think it was worth it. Well, Ray, my pleasure, and thank you very much.